0: Hello, and welcome again to another podcast of The Conservative Historian. This one entitled, The Purpose of a Military. The date, June 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. Quote, The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry that can... On no account be neglected. Unquote. Sun Tzu, The Art of War quote, War is such a dangerous business that mistakes that come from kindness are the very worst, and a strong character will not be unbalanced by the most powerful of emotions. Unquote. Carl von Clausewitz, On War. End quote. He will win who knows when to fight and when not to fight. He will win who knows how to handle both superior and inferior forces. He will win whose army is animated by the same spirit throughout all of its ranks. He will win who, prepared himself, waits to take the enemy unprepared. He will win who has military capacity and is not interfered with by the sovereign. Unquote. That was Sun Tzu again, though I would amend that last word from sovereign to ideology. An army should have but two ideologies, deter or destroy the enemy. In addition to Sun Tzu, I began with two Carl von Clausewitz quotes, but here is arguably his most famous, quote, "...war is the continuation of politics by other means," unquote. What Clausewitz was not saying was that the military that conducts the wars should be rife with politics. Rather, what he was really saying was when all politics, when all diplomacy is exhausted, then a nation needs to rely on its military. And again, that military provides two different things, protection from enemies and the ability to destroy those enemies that would destroy your nation. In book seven of his Histories, Herodotus describes the Spartans at Thermopylae, quote, When Xerxes heard that, he could not comprehend the fact that the Lacedaemonians were, to the best of their ability, preparing to kill or be killed, unquote. The father of history goes on to note, quote, The Lacedaemonians fought memorably, showing them skilled fighters amidst unskilled on many occasions— as when they would turn their backs and feign flight. The barbarians would see them fleeing and chase with shouting and noise, but the, when the Lacedaemonians were overtaken, they would turn to face the barbarians and overthrow innumerable Persians. A few of the Spartans themselves were also slain. When the Persians could gain no inch of the pass, attacking by companies and in every other fashion, they withdrew." Unquote. Now, as we know from this source, or Fictional accounts, such as Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Hell or Zack Snyder's movie The 300, it did not end well for this band of Spartans. Quote, Leonidas, proving himself extremely valiant, fell in that struggle, and with him other famous Spartans. Unquote. The other great power of BCE 5th century Greece, Athens, depended more on her fleet rather than on the Spartans' hoplite heavy infantry. As Thucydides in his book, The Peloponnesian War, notes, quote, At the time when the fleet was at sea, the Athenians had the largest number of ships which they ever had altogether, effective and in good trim, although the mere number was as large or even larger at the commencement of the war. This conflict, the Peloponnesian War, which was to last nearly 30 years, only ended when the Spartans, with the connivance of the Persians, established hegemony on the sea. In the 16th century CE, a newly unified Japan under General Hideyoshi invaded Korea. As with the Spartans, their land forces were victorious. Unlike the Spartans, later on in the Peloponnesian War, the Japanese were never entirely successful at sea, primarily due to the efforts of Korean Admiral Yi Sun-Shin, in my book, The Conservative Historian Collected Works, available for sale on Amazon, by the way, I rank Yi Sun-Shin as the second greatest admiral of all time, right behind Horatio Nelson. In an article on Asian studies, author Mark Jason Gilbert notes, quote, though little known in the West, Korean Admiral Yi Sun-Shin, 1545 to 1598, is a major figure in Korean and Japanese history. His technological and strategic innovations sparked a revolution in Asian naval warfare and initiated both the modern naval force and style of combat. These innovations helped Korea repel a series of Japanese invasions from 1592 to 1598, paving the way for more than 250 years of Japanese semi-isolation from world affairs. The ultimate adoption of Yi's ideas by the defeated Japanese led to their triumph in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, an event that altered the balance of power in Asia and much of subsequent world history, Unquote. But like many military leaders before and since, the Admiral had to deal with the intrusion of politics, Quote, Like many innovators, Yi Sun-Shin suffered many disappointments due to domestic political intrigues and regional military rivalry. So let's step back at this point. I've covered a lot of ground. I went all the way from ancient Greece and Persia all the way to medieval Japan and Korea. But there is something though that's salient about all of these situations. And that is something that is missing from any of these descriptions. There is no mention of individual Spartans trying to be all that they can be, there was no army of one, and absolutely no mention of things such as ecology, diversity, or equity. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because in May of 2021, the United States Army issued a series of stories highlighting individual soldiers for recruitment purposes. Quote, after settling on a short list of potential candidates stories were tested to assess their resonance with today's youth, unquote, the press release said. One of the most notable of these was that of Corporal Emma Malone Lord. First off, she does possess an inspiring story. She was a college graduate with a bright future ahead but she heard the call of protecting our freedom and enlisted in the army. But that is not exactly why the U.S. Army has chosen to highlight this particular individual. It is because she has two moms. That's really it. Now, the military does a solid job of linking Corporal Malone Lord's calling to that upbringing. But of course, that is the point. Her parents, not her calling. The army stated, quote, the final cast provides a rich tapestry of stories that represent the diverse upbringings and life experiences that make up today's army, So one wonders, when Leonidas set off for Thermopylae, or Themistocles, whose Athenian fleet destroyed the Persian fleet at Salamis, thus preserving Greek civilization for all of us, Did these leaders worry that their militaries lacked diverse upbringings or differentiated life experiences? I would think not. Instead, they were more concerned about whether these forces could destroy that of their enemies or, in the case of Leonidas, buy enough time for the other Greeks to assemble. This is not to disparage, at all, the sacrifice being made by those figures such as Corporal Malone Lord. She is making a sacrifice That I was not willing to make. Four-star general Robert Abrams, currently serving as the commander of U.S. forces in South Korea, wrote on Twitter that Corporal Malone Lord is a, quote, superstar by any measure, unquote. Given the circumstances, I would probably agree with that. But that is not the reason she is featured her characteristics or how she fits into the greater purpose of the army is not the focus of the video. She is there because her parents are lesbians. And this is not to say that a brilliant soldier could not emanate from such a family. And in fact, I I would applaud the fact that Corporal Malone Lord comes from a two-parent family. And I would frankly also contend that that is one of the reasons that she would be outstanding or a superstar. But again, The focus is is not on her two-parent upbringing, but rather the nature of her parents in and of themselves. In a word, the video is, is less about Corporal Malone Lord and more about diversity. These videos do not mention Corporal Malone Lord's expertise at killing, but her unique upbringing and her search for meaning. Now, let's consider the seven U.S. Army values. Here they are. Loyalty. Duty. Respect. Selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Leaders expect loyalty from their soldiers, and soldiers expect loyalty from their leaders. It is a reciprocal approach that is demonstrated through team cohesiveness. Note that a diverse fighting force, or one that practices equity, is not in this code. And as for personal meaning, the individual is subjugated to the squad's needs, the platoon, the brigade, the division, the army. Diversity is not the point. All focusing on the same goal is the point. An army has to have one color, and that is the color of their uniforms, which they all happen to be wearing. These values did not spring up overnight. They are built on the successes and failures of 5,000 years of known warfare. If ever there was an army with diversity, it would have been the Persians. They drew their armed forces from all of the conquered areas of their empire. And then the Greeks would have been the opposite, unified a purpose and training, and they beat the Persians consistently. Later, Alexander Macedonians, again, a non-diverse force based on the phalanx, conquered them. In an article called The Effectiveness of Military Organizations, written by Alan R. Milley, Williamson Murray, and Kenneth Watman, the author, state, quote, Military effectiveness is the process by which armed forces convert resources into fighting power. A fully effective military drives maximum combat power from the resources, physically and politically available. The constraints that military organizations must overcome are both natural and political. Unquote. And one of the critical political strain- constraints. Noted by the author, is, quote, popular attitudes towards the military, unquote. I am not even certain that wokeism, as a religion, is generally popular, but it is among a very set of influential people. It has permeated our colleges, our nonprofit institutions, secondary education, and, of course, our government. And what we are seeing today is the expansion of its tentacles into our military when you see things like diversity or equity issued out in army press releases you know wokeism has arrived on the doorstep of the military and this philosophy in terms of our building an effective and efficient military is not just divisive but it's dumb Because we do not, as Israel has, a draft, we are reliant on the ability of the Army to do what I have personally spent over 20 years doing. It's marketing. And in Marketing 101, you ask a simple question before putting any plans together. How big is my market? First off, how many people, much less women, decide after graduation from college, barring being in the ROTC, to join the Army? Then there's the gender push. Women in the military currently comprise 14% of the total, and given the ever-increasing entry of women into the highest ranks of every profession, and that they now comprise over 55% of all college graduates, the Army pool of potential women will probably not increase. More than likely, it will go backward. Then we add in the gay household. According to the Williams Institute study of American demographics, less than 5% identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual within the United States, and 0.3% identify as trans. That is not a big market. It is not just that the military is wrong to focus on women and not much larger potential of males but that they would focus on a tiny percent of individuals raised in a same-sex marriage. Then add in that traditionally the military has been more conservative than liberal. For example, in 2016, 14.5% of service members said they would cast their vote for Trump compared to just 20.6% who would vote for Hillary Clinton. Yet gays have not. Nearly 9 million LGBTQ adults are registered and eligible to vote in the 2020 general election. Half of registered LGBTQ voters, around 50%, are registered as Democrats as opposed to 15% for Republicans. So why would the Army feature and add that? By its very nature, would appeal to a small minority when the ultimate goal is to recruit more valued people to the military. Does the Army have unlimited advertising budgets to hit everyone at every time? Perhaps, but this does not change the fact that the most notable recruiting effort they are now conducting will yield a tiny member of new service people. If the Army were genuinely interested in increasing its ranks, which I thought would be the goal, it would focus its efforts on different demographics. So why is the army running this ad? A more logical reason is that the military, like so many other institutions, as I have noted above, has been affected by the virus of woke religion. As the invaluable historian Victor Davis Hansen notes, quote, The Pentagon seems to have lost its way. It is transmogrified into a cultural engine of change, from a defensive force devoted to battlefield supremacy. The Defense Department is chasing its tail, supposedly on the scent of white supremacists of the armed insurrectionist sort who stormed the Capitol. A woke military is pursuing an ideological witch hunt of its own based on the myth of an epidemic of armed insurrectionists in its ranks. Does the Pentagon scan its enlistments for any youth who rioted, burned, or looted all last summer? Is it afraid they're sympathizers of radical Islamists of the Major Nadal Hansen sort, you know, the 2009 mass murder at Fort Hood, whose killing spree of unarmed U.S. soldiers worried then Chief of Staff General George Casey that his diversity initiatives might suffer? Current Defense Secretary General Lloyd Austin, who promises to find the, these occult alt writers only follows the directors of a progressive Washington elite that sees a racist or Trump supporter, terms it considers synonymous, under every American bunk. Yet Americans do not want their generals conducting political witch hunts of their enlisted ranks. They do not want retired admirals to be known as liberals or conservatives by the nature of their publicity express venom against sitting presidents. They do not want the Pentagon weighing in on every contentious cultural and social issue. Unquote. In addition to the video series featuring Corporal Manillard, here are a few additional nuggets concerning the movement within the military. The U.S. Army announced that it now classifies climate change as a quote, serious threat to U.S. national security interests and defense objectives. Unquote. The statement subsequently signaled the military's intention to prioritize combating climate change with new risk analyses, threat projections, installation and natural resource planning, supply chain procurement considerations, and general strategy. Now I am a learned man who believes that the use of profanity shows a lack of erudition and scholarliness. But I have to say, when I read that one, what the f- I have studied warfare for over the past 6,000 years of history. From stone clubs to klishnikovs. From Chinese gunpowder and cannon to ironclads and aircraft carriers. From the Phalanx, to the Roman Legion, to the Mongolian tuman to the modern-day combat brigade. I have studied wars from the Incas in Peru, to the Males in Africa, to the Khmer conquests in Southeast Asia in the 12th century. And in all that time, I have never seen an army mobilized to fight the environment, to fight climate. I have I have seen stupidity ranging from Varro in the Teutoburg Forest to Custer at Little Bighorn, and I have never seen anything uttered by the military as stupid as that statement. Mobilized to fight climate change what the uh, the army does not have a role in climate change if in the fever dreams of eco warriors an authoritarian government were to shut down the factories end meat production or limit us to a gallon of gas per week that would still be a political legislative and executive decision and in this nation at least supposedly a civilian decision Nothing to do with the military and the fact that a bunch of spineless political generals would advocate for this without resigning their commissions means we should just learn Mandarin, figure out how to kowtow, and hand the keys to China's G right this minute. And the Navy, not wishing to left behind in the woke Olympics currently being conducted, recently decided uh, to include how to be an anti-racist, uh, that great advocate Imbram X. Kendi. This advocates for critical race theory in its recommended reading list. Senator Tom Cotton, one of the few thinking people left in Washington, and a former army captain who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, lambasted the branch for prioritizing diversity over unity regardless of skin color in the service. Thank you, God, for Senator Tom Cotton, by the way. And in March, the Navy also came under fire, logically. After a leak, military extremism training showed that sailors were instructed not to discuss, quote, politically partisan topics on duty. So they're not supposed to discuss that, but they were permitted to promote Black Lives Matter while on duty. Because, of course, Black Lives Matter isn't political at all, is it? Oh, my God. (sighs) our republic features a civilian-led military. The prescience of the founders, the ones who are now being condemned and having their statues torn down, steeped in history, understood that two victorious generals tend to use the particular tool of a military to achieve their ends. We do not even need to look at the Romans such as Sulla or Julius Caesar, who used their armies to destroy their own republic, to see this. Egypt today is ruled by a general, Erdogan, The strongman of Turkey only achieved preeminence when he co-opted the army. The mainstay of the Iranian regime is the Republican Guards. That is why the Founders made an elected President-Commander-in-Chief and put a War Secretary, now Defense Secretary, appointed by the President and approved by the Senate as another additional layer of civilian control. As an elected official, though, here's the problem, The issue is that the person at the top lives in the stew of politics, and none so as in today's progressives. Now, I know this is going to come shocking to this audience, but I'm not really very enthralled with government. I believe its ability to erode societal values, wear away moral attributes, waste prodigious amount of money. Right now, Biden's thinking about $6 trillion will be wasted and damage previously working systems is extreme. No, not a fan of government. And throughout history, from Chinese mandarins to the Tokugawa shogunate to the communist regimes in Russia, China, and Cuba of the 20th century, governments have often been the agents of internal tyranny. Yet, history is also replete with conquest. Alongside the apocalyptical representations of plague and famine, there is the conqueror. And in the Declaration of Independence, signed during our founding in 1776, lay two of the core values for which a national government should be entirely responsible. You see, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not a nihilist. I'm an advocate of small government, except for two areas, elucidated, as I've just noted, by the Declaration the national government needs to preserve liberty and preserve life. Life and liberty are at the behest of a strong national defense force, a military. Historically, ask the Persians under Darius III, this is the one who was conquered by the Macedonians, the Gauls during Caesar's time, or the Chinese during the Mongol invasions, about what a weak military response looks like. Or today, ask the people of the Ukraine, the Crimea or Tibet, what life looks like without a robust defense against more aggressive people. And I should note it is the government's intrusion into that third value, the pursuit of happiness is where all the trouble begins, but that's a podcast for another time. The government exists to preserve liberty and life. The American military can do many things. It can help build bridges. Yes, it can inspire citizens and even help a man or woman be all that they could be. But these functions are ancillary to the mission. They are not the point. Deter foreign aggressors. And if said aggressors do not wish to be deterred, destroy their ability to deny life and liberty to the American people. That is it. That's all a military exists to do. The U.S. military is not a club. It is not a community center, it is not a rehab program, and it is definitely not an dependence to political party or ideology. And it is not an engine to save the environment, eliminate societal inequities, or reorder systemic ills, as those terms are understood in 2021. The deterrence of foreign enemies or the actual destruction of their aggressive capabilities is the purpose, the mission. This focus usually means the destruction of foreign resources, and by the way, it also means killing other people. Remember earlier in the podcast, I had talked about how the Spartans uh, were quoted by Herodotus and surprised Xerxes by their ability to kill or to accept death? The Spartans and all of Greece were simply too small to provide a deterrence to Persia. So when Persia invaded, the only way that the Spartans and the rest of Greece could remain free was to kill the Persians. That's how it works. We have a pretty good idea of what armies that failed to heed these historical lessons look like. Let's take the Athenians, for example. Their victory at Salamis cemented Greek freedom. But during the Peloponnesian War, the political jockeying and infighting swayed their decisions to their detriment. Athenian political decisions, especially around the figure of Alcibiades, a brilliant Athenian politician in general who might have even won them the war, was mainly at the center of several unwise choices, most notably among these the decision to invade Sicily, based again on political expedience and not military ones. The Battle of Orazio. This is a battle that took place in 105 B.C., Arrayed against the migratory tribes of Germania were two Roman armies, one commanded by the proconsul Quintus Servilius Capio, and another by consul Gnaeus Malleus Maximus. Bitter differences between these two commanders prevented the Roman armies from cooperating with devastating results. As the consul of the year, Maximus outran Capio, and therefore should have by law been the senior commander of the combined armies. However, because Maximus was a novus homo, or a new man, one without a long list of ancestors, and therefore lacked the noble background of the Roman aristocracy, Capio refused to serve under him and made camp on the opposite side of the river. When the Germans came, they were able to destroy each army in succession. One of two things could have happened to prevent disaster. Either A, Capio should have been recalled by his buddies in the Senate, but being a fellow aristocrat, they wouldn't do that. Or Maximus shouldn't have been sent out over an aristocrat in the first place. In other words, political decisions and political belief systems had so infiltrated the minds of these Roman commanders that they led them both to disaster. Let's talk about something a little bit nearer in history. The Union Army in the American Civil War nearly lost the war due to the actions of generals appointed, not due to skill or experience, but rather political connections. In one most notable case, Daniel Sickles moved out of his position on the second day of Gettysburg and by doing so nearly led to a Union defeat. And from the Civil War, from the General William Tecumseh Sherman, we have the quote, War is hell. Just as with plague and famine, the world would be a better place for the end of war. You do not need to tell a historian worth their salt about the horrors of war. Those who believe that what does not kill you will make you stronger need to maybe read a little bit more about World War I. Europe survived, but was afterwards a broken entity. During the Battle of the Somme in World War I, 200,000, 200,000, British soldiers, roughly two-thirds of the population of the city of St. Louis, were killed in under 30 days of fighting. And even in more minor conflicts, ones involving us directly, such as the Iraq War or America's nearly 20 years in Afghanistan, have created a whole class of victims that live among us. And as far as those victims go, every effort we have as a nation should be put forth to help veterans with PTSD or other sufferings from these wars leftists often say that if you did not spend so much money on defense that you could afford this or that social program i would contend that if you did not spend so much on those social programs you would have plenty of money left over i mean really in california a teacher can retire at 55 on a full pension how about giving some of that money to the veteran who has ptsd and If Congress can whip up out of basically nowhere a trillion dollars for COVID relief when vaccines are here and the economy is in recovery, then you can spend whatever is necessary on veterans. I mean, come, you know, as our president would say, come on, all the horrors of war, including PTSD, do not change one seminal fact about humanity itself. Something hardwired into our DNA and it is not going away. And that is the fact that there lies in too many humans a predatory species that is more cunning, vicious, and fearsome than any falcon, lion, or a shark is a sense of wishing to dominate their fellow human beings. In Putin's Russia, we see it today. In China's Xi, in North Korea's Kim, and Iran's Khamenei, the length of the list is woefully long. We are hardwired to predation. There it is. And therefore, we need protection from those who aggressiveness manifests itself in a thirst for conquest and domination. And that means we need a ready military, literally at a moment's notice, to respond. Let's be clear. Critical theory and wokeism implemented in an army that should be unified on those purposes of which I have described above, to deter or destroy an enemy, is an unnecessary and potentially fatal distraction. Institution by institution, we have seen the virus of this ideology creep into education, entertainment, the media, the law, science, and now we have it at the core of our fighting force. But here's the difference. In the movieplex, the classroom, or the cable news program, we can contend against a scourge that seeks to divide rather than unite. But if China invades Taiwan... If Iran tries to conquer Saudi Arabia, if North Korea launches nuclear weapons against Seoul or Seattle, our military must be trained, equipped, and focused on the mission. I lament how our military would do against these types of threats. Notice what I have not said. I have not said about a direct land invasion of our homeland. The primary reason for that is because of the traditional power of the United States military. The tradition of being able to project our power across seas means that it is a deterrence, but even that should not be taken for granted. Sun Tzu stated, quote, The art of war teaches us to rely not on the likelihood of the enemy's not coming, but on our readiness to receive him not on the chance of his not attacking but rather on the fact that we have made our position unassailable unquote. does a military more concerned with ecology diversity societal equity and theories on systemic racism does that military seem unassailable it seems divided It seems like a military that's far more interested in political ideology than in its true mission. Is an army subject to an intentionally divisive ideology capable of upholding our liberty and our lives? Thank you for listening to this latest of a conservative historian podcast. Look for all of our podcasts on our Buzzsprout feed. And if you're interested in more materials, take a look at our website at www.conservativehistorian.com. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening.